Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. We got an interesting topic today for today's podcast. Perfection. The pursuit of perfection doesn't exist. It makes you miserable trying to chase it. It's the huge trap in match play. I'm all about competing, finding a way, hence winning ugly. But so many players got this fixation with being perfect at club level, juniors, pros. I see it all the time. What are your thoughts on this subject, Buck? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that was a struggle for me. I created a lot of expectations, self-expectations that were just too high, put a lot of pressure on myself, not only to win, but to, but to play how I thought I was supposed to be playing, you know, at some really high level all the time. And that would just lead to big drop-offs in matches when things started to not go my way. So yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, it's, an, it's a topic that definitely fascinates me because something that, you know, I probably still need to work on when I'm out there on the court. Just want to get, you know, your thoughts and, and, your, and your take on the matter. A couple of players recently that I've been working with, one junior, one pro, both struggle with this whole perception of being perfect and what is perfect to them. And during practice, I notice both of them play a good point, but there's no recognition of a good point because it could always be better. It could be the more perfect point. And I feel like when this becomes your thought process about what you should do or how it should be, it totally affects you when things don't go well. Then you don't learn how to make changes on the fly. Match play so often is about keeping score. And occasionally, I say five times a year, you are going to be able to go out and beat anybody. There's five matches a year. Maybe you're not going to be able to beat anyone. All the rest in between are what make you a tennis player, what make you learn how to compete. And so this whole notion that when things aren't going well, you start really stressing And the next thing you know, you start losing points in bunches. Or you're not happy when you're winning because it could have been this way or it should be that way, I think is a real struggle for for players. About four or five years ago, I was working with another player when, when I lived in San Rafael who had the same problem. I was kind of, you know, struggling with this a little bit. And a player from my area, Jeff Greenwald, who's become a very prominent senior player and an outstanding sports psychologist. So I called him and I said, I would like this player that I'm working with to to sit down and have a few sessions with him. So after the player had a few sessions with him, I started to talk with Jeff about this. And I've really found Jeff engaging to speak to about this topic. And he told me this was him when he was 15 years old. He was trapped by this whole notion of being perfect and being this top five player in the world. And he moved down to Boletaries and he felt like his game completely hit the wall because he wasn't perfect. He couldn't handle it and pretty much led to him giving up the game. And when he retook up the game as an adult, 
He's one of those guys that really learned from the mistakes that he created when he was a kid. And it, he's learned from this now in his sports psychology and working with players and helping them learn to get out of this notion that you got to be perfect. And I say, you just need to be a few points better than the person on the other side of the net. So many people think when you win a match, Buck, 6-4, six, 6-4, four, six, four, you, you got to win like 60% of the points, or you, you, you got to dominate. So often in tennis, if you win 51% of the points, you're in good shape. That's an easy 6-4, six, 6-4 four, six, four win. And then this whole notion that you don't get satisfied by winning 6-4, six, 7-5, four, six, four, seven, seven, six, or it could have been better is what kind of makes the brain go crazy. And that's what really gives you trouble. And both of these two players that I was working with recently always seem a little bit down or I'll tell them, great point, do it again. And I kind of look at him. I say, are you just taking that for granted? But when they play a couple of points that aren't so good, those seem to really stay with them more. And I, I find that tennis and match play and when you're practicing, so much of it is on the fly. What we're learning to do, how we're learning to problem solve. That just gets me wondering, I mean, how do you get them to put as much stock in the points that they win as opposed to the points that they lose? How do you, how do you find that balance? It's a great question and thought because so many people do think that obviously there's bigger points than others. I like to tell so many of the players that I work with, the first five minutes is usually the most important. The warm-up and the start, getting you ready, how I'm ready to compete. But Obviously, there's those few points that people make up in their mind that if they lose it, it, it means more and it brings everything down. But so many people think this is the way I'm going to play or I should play or I want to play. And when that's not happening, they yeah, can't handle it. That's what would happen to me because I would just have this really work all week in practice thinking, OK, this is the way I'm going to be you know, attacking the first ball on my forehand or this is you know, how well I'm going to be serving. and and I, I I could easily get derailed when things started not going my way. And I think part of that was not factoring in as much what my opponent was going to do. Because the, the funny thing is to every winning ugly strategy that you have, your opponent has one as well to throw you off your game. So when you don't take that into consideration, just think like, why why are things not going perfectly? A lot of times people aren't even thinking, well, maybe it has something to do with what my opponent's doing to throw off my rhythm. And maybe they've thought they figured something out. But also just that with these expectations being so high, I think just what I, what I have learned, having some perspective now, some, some distance on playing competitive tennis from when I was younger, is just, I, I wish I could tell my younger self to go into matches knowing that there are going to be ups and downs. Like you said, maybe you have those, those five matches a year where, where everything goes perfect and there's no ups and downs. But everything else, there's going to be peaks and valleys and, and you just have to understand that going into it and then when things do go a little south when you maybe have have a, have a lapse that that that's okay and, and you can move on and you can you can get it back together see i never was obsessed about hitting the perfect shot i don't even know what that feels like and and these two players that i was working with it's so much about this perfect shot 
hitting it cross court, finishing down the line, or everything about it. I, I much more think about competing, seeing what's going to happen while the match is going. I have ideas before the match starts, but I do know that when you're searching for this perfect, when things don't go well, you're not likely to be able to make adjustments because your brain shuts down. So often club players, they panic because I'm playing the lefty, I'm playing the pusher. And these things really make them worry and let it happen, learn on the fly. And I know you had one little Andre anecdote. If you could just share that story, I think that that's pretty illuminating as well. In 1994, I started coaching Andre in Miami, and he had a little bit of success in the first tournament, got to the finals, lost to Sampras. So for about the next three, four months, we were struggling, struggling until Toronto in the summer, and he had lost quite a few close matches, and one in particular the week before in Washington, and he was pretty down. So we get to Toronto, and you know I'm all upbeat that this could be the week. And in the first match, he smokes Jacob Lassick, 6-1-6-1. And he thinks that's the match that, boom, I'm back. Because Andre battled perfect every bit as much as anybody that I've met. And I felt like this was a real good coaching and teaching moment between us. And I said, this match was one of those matches that was a no-brainer. What you need more than anything is to be able to win a match, save a couple of match points, win it like, you know, tiebreaker in a third. And he's looking at me like, that's the kind of match that you want to win. I don't want to win a match like that. And Andre sometimes would win a match 7-6-6-4, but would be miserable about it. And then he could almost talk himself or work himself into losing the next match. Yeah, I, I actually think that's something I've heard from a decent amount of players is even walking off the court with a win and just totally not feeling satisfied about it because it wasn't the, the, the perfect performance in their mind. Any good win for me is a good win. So we get to the next day, he's playing David Wheaton, a guy that he's actually struggled with. I believe at that point, he was maybe either 1-3 head-to-head or 2-3 head-to-head. I absolutely own the guy. I was 7-0 and against him, but a bunch of the matches were really close. I actually felt really good, you know, that Andre was going to play well against the guy. So I'm sitting there the next day watching him play David Wheaton. And first of all, I'm shocked. I, and I'm like, thank goodness he never played like this against me because he wouldn't be 0-7 Guy's playing unbelievable. But it turns out to be one of those matches that there's just nothing in it. Andre ends up scraping out in a third set breaker, saving three match points, winning 9-7, breaker in a third. Exactly what I was talking about beforehand, the day before, winning a 7-6 you know, in a third. And just like I had thought Andre was about to go south and be miserable. And I told him, I said, this is the match that gives you the opportunity to play tomorrow, to do great things later in the week. You don't worry about what has happened, but you, the positive is we are still in the tournament. You have things that you can do better, that you want to do better, but more importantly, 
Tomorrow is a different opponent and a different match. And this match is history. But let's focus on the positives tomorrow. And he was kind of looking at me annoyed and, you know, being the eternal optimist and him being this perfectionist. He got through this moment. And four days later, he won Toronto. And I felt like that one match beating David Wheaton second round in Canada was the impetus of him winning the U.S. Open literally a month later. But a day before, he would have considered it the worst win ever winning like that. Funny how often you'll see players go on great runs after escaping or just getting by a really tight match early on in a tournament, you know, you win one, maybe you were, you know, maybe the other guy served for the match and you clawed out of it. The random one that comes to mind was Jack Sock, like beating Kyle Edmund. Uh, when Kyle Edmund was up, maybe what was it? Five, two in the, in the third double break, double break. And Sock would have finished the year 20, 25 in the world. And then ends up go escaping that winning the tournament, m- making London. So, so often you see a player who's been struggling and a lot of players have most trouble in the first round, maybe get through one of these matches that they've been losing, and then boom, next thing you know, they're in the finals or winning the tournament. So you never know when one match can change weeks on and what they can change moving forward. And then what I was thinking, this is a bit more of an abstract thought, but if you escape a close match and you have so much freedom after that going forward because you kind of feel like you're playing with house money a little bit it loosens you up i'm like what if you could figure out a way to get in that mindset going into a tournament thinking like how you tell yourself you're down when you're up like what if you could tell yourself first first round i've already escaped a tough match and and play with that freedom i mean i don't know if you can really make yourself believe that but it'd be quite a thought well that thought was me when i was 18 i would always tell myself us two five down, or I have to do better. I have to compete harder. Your ability to convince yourself of things is is actually amazing because I'm always like, I'll say it, but I, I can't really get get my own brain to actually believe it. You you seem to. I've have told a couple players like that self, I've coached self hypnotization. Andre was one. He's like, how can you just tell yourself you're two five down when you're five two up? It <laughs> exactly. makes no sense. But that, a lot that's of your, I, that's your genius, I guess. But a lot of club players. This is where they get into huge trouble when they're trying to close out a set and then they fall apart. And I say, listen, just keep doing what you do. Keep competing. Don't worry about the score. But if you tell yourself you're down, maybe you'll push more. Okay, it's Q&A time now after that. I actually really enjoyed that first segment. That was that was good. That was good off the cuff stuff. I liked it. But now for the Q and A, and got another really good batch of questions. Really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness coming into them. A lot of outside the box questions too. But this first one, I, I think, is an important one to address given this time. Eddie M asks, "Do you feel comfortable playing tennis during this COVID time? Any tips for us that are a bit unsure?" No doubt this is a serious, important question. I go and play at the Malibu Racquet Club. We wear a mask, drive over there. And then if you have to go inside the club, you know, obviously you have to wear a mask. 
until you get on the court and you take the mask off because I wear glasses and they fog up. But when me and you play, you know, we're in the same family and we play with the same balls. But I've even seen people at the club playing using different balls when one's serving and the other's serving. And, And obviously when you're outside, tennis is a social distancing, you're on the other side of the net. But I feel like it's a very safe activity as long as you practice the safe measures. But definitely wear a mask to and from. And if you can play with different balls, that, that's another level. And right now I'm playing like two, three times a week. And listen, it's the best way to keep the, the brain sane at the moment. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is nice to have that sort of outdoor activity release for, for some of the, the stress. And newer studies are pointing to that your level of risk, if you're practicing social distancing while outside, much lower than inside. And if you're playing singles, you're on the baseline, your opponent's on the baseline, you're 78 feet away. And I've been giving lessons to the two boys of a, of a prominent doctor in the Los Angeles area. And so we've been really making sure to cross the T's and dot the I's. And I, I bring my basket of balls. His boys don't touch the balls. They'll, they'll kick them back. And then when they go into serving, they use their balls. And we always just 10 feet of distance at, at least at all times. And, you know, I think if he's comfortable, the doctor's comfortable with that, then I, that, that at least leaves me feeling pretty good about the situation of playing tennis right now. I totally agree. Okay. Next question from Anjali. She's in her early fifties and a four or five player. So a very solid player. Very solid player. And, and she even mentioned in the email that she plays four or five times a week. So very, very active player. She asks, what advice do you have for club players who are aging despite our best efforts and need to adjust their singles game accordingly? What different drills stro- or strokes should we be practicing to adjust for diminished foot speed and more? And she says, uh, as an add-on, she'd like to play singles for at least another 25 years. This is a great question. I'll take myself. My game, until I was at least 40, was based upon my wheels. Counterpunching, moving, getting back into points, turning points around. Now at 58 years young, I'm almost 59, I I can't move nearly as well. So I can feel what you're talking about. So most importantly is you need to develop your game. So in my instance, I never really was an aggressive player from the center of the court. So now when I got a forehand from the center of the court, I'm going to try to be a lot more aggressive because I I can't rely on my defensive skills that I used to be. Maybe when you're on defense too, put a little more air on your shots. I also think that you can still work on your movement, your fitness. I think fitness is something that, you know, can really help you as you get older, that you don't have those lapses in matches, you know, fitness wise, but I think that you can still develop shots, whether or not I can be a little more accurate with my serve. Maybe you start thinking about serve and first plus one, but most importantly, learn to you know, at your four or five level, learn to be better in the center of the court if you don't trust your defense. 
Yeah, now sounds like sage advice to me, and I think controlling the center of the court, that's been something you've been harping on for quite a while, so. And it was something when I played, I would pass that opportunity back. I was not somebody that was comfortable taking control of the center of the court. Fair enough. Got to evolve over time, right? Absolutely. Next question from Hamza, who uh, coaches kids in elementary all the way through high school. And and this is a doubles-related question. He asks, for doubles, are you a one-up, one-back advocate? I've always been a two-up sort of guy, two-up at net, he means. But my players get feisty when they get lobbed after I've told them to push in. I would love to hear your thoughts on the benefits and disadvantages of one-up, one-back, or two-up at net. Coach, I'm glad your players are getting a little bit feisty. One of my all-time pet peeves that when I do some clinics and talk to some club players, juniors, and I remember once in Houston, I was working with a, a team. They were telling me that their coach makes them serve and volley on everything. And my first thought was, do you want to serve and volley? And she's like, no, but coach makes me do it. And I was like, is coach playing the 4-0 match? Is he going to win or lose the match? You need to do what the strength of your game is. If you're much more comfortable at the back of the court, serve and stay back, wait to come in on a short ball. And if you're much more comfortable coming forward, come forward, play to the strength of your game. And if you're worried about getting lobbed, move back a little bit in the box. But I think it's most important to be adaptable, but also if you're not comfortable at all surviving it, try it in practice. Doesn't mean that you need to do it in match play, but try it in practice. But I I myself now hardly ever serve and volley because the strength of my game is hitting the serve and hitting a first ball forehand coming in. Maybe I'll serve and volley occasionally on a first serve, but none on the second. And I hate it when Players are trying to come in on their second serve. Even pros are college players. Your college coach was crazy about having all of his guys come in on the second serve when they don't volley well. And I would scratch my head, why are you wanting these guys to come in when the strength of their game is serving forehand? And I will say, at least for my game, like as I started serving a little bit better, well, I think when I got to college it made more sense for me to stay back. And, and, but by working on it in practice so much, sir, and volleying, I actually, by the end of it, felt, felt more comfortable coming in. But that was just my personal case. But you'll see, I don't even think uh, Humza mentioned that the possibility of both back, but you'll see, uh, I think some college teams where both are, are back on the baseline when they're serving, like the player is serving, his, his teammate, his, his doubles partner is actually standing behind him and then he'll pick a side, which is a is a really interesting tactic. Hamza, I have no idea why in the early 70s when I was a kid, let's say I was 11 or 12, it almost seemed like it was illegal to serve and stay back. I, I never came in, but all of a sudden when I'm playing doubles, it's like, no, you, you know, because I'm playing with the older guy, you got to serve and volley. I mean, where is it written that you got to do that? You need to play to the strength of your game. So if you have one guy that's a really good net player, maybe it's a good idea to pair him with somebody that's, you know, good from the back. That might be a good mix. But don't make somebody be uncomfortable. Make them be comfortable. That will help you get more wins. Absolutely. Okay, next question. This is from Louisa, 
and she's originally from Mexico City, a, pl- a place that you played before. She asks, do you have any tips for playing at altitude? I think you do. Love this question. I happen to be working with a player a, a few weeks ago who was going to play a tournament in Utah in altitude. And I had a lot of success in my career at playing in altitude. So I'm going to tell her a story about Mexico City, Davis Cup. It was in the early 90s. Jim Courier is my teammate playing his first Davis Cup match. And we're playing up at this mountain club. He's playing two, uh, Mexico has two lefties, Lavalier and Louis Herrera, both kind of sneaky and come in. Courier strung his rackets tight, like almost 70 pounds. He's trying to string his rackets at 90 pounds. He's almost breaking the machine and still like going nuts because he can't find the court the way he wants to. I'm the opposite. Of course, I'm the opposite. You know, normally I string my rackets in the high 50s. When I got to altitude, I would string my rackets 15 pounds looser. So I told this to Curry and he's like, what? Because the ball at 7,500 feet is flying, whether or not you go looser or tighter. So instead of 57, I go all the way down to 42. I'm struggling, but a couple of days later, I'm starting to find my groove a little bit. Then the day before, so we practicing five days before, I bump it up like five pounds. All of a sudden now, I'm controlling the ball, and then maybe even on match day, I go up one pound tighter. So I'm six pounds from where I started, nine pounds looser, and my game is fine. And Courier, he's looking at me like, what the heck are you doing? And then he struggled. So I I feel like what she's asking is, in the high altitude, the ball's going to fly. You need to work the middle of the court. You need to give yourself a lot more space. And also, you can't be hard on yourself. The ball's going to fly, but definitely tinker with your tension. Tinker with a lot of different things and your expectations, take them down. You just got to be better than your opponent. It's going to be a struggle. And one thing's for sure too, your oxygen level. You you know, you get winded much easier, drink lots of fluids. And as much as your opponent, the elements, you'll battle it. But if you tinker, you can play good in the altitude. It's sort of a recurring theme. When Whenever conditions are, are suboptimal, I mean, we had a question about playing it in the wind on the last episode, whether it's the wind, whether it's dealing with altitude, crazy shadows, you can't expect that, you know, it's just going to come easy to you. You have to know that it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge, but that all things are equal for you and your opponent. Back to perfect. Perfect conditions at a tournament when everybody was in a... Exactly, yeah. Loving it usually is going to be a bad week for me. But when we were at the worst dump and the worst facility and the worst, you know, everything usually was best for me. And then I usually put those tournaments out of business. Say, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. This next question, and I'm really already enjoying, we're getting a lot of questions about coaching younger kids. I thought I just wanted to start off with this question, which is a little bit broader. Derek V, he asks, if you have a child that is interested in tennis, 
what are good skills to teach them to get started? Derek's a great question. When I was, I started young at three. Very young. Very young. <laughs> I didn't even know it was young. <laughs> did, did you know what you were doing? That you were even playing tennis? Well, because I had an older brother, <laughs> no, older know, sister, know, and you, you want to be better than them. Yeah. But I think more importantly, it's feet. Feet are connected to the brain. And I, in the era that I played, I played every sport, which helped me with my you know, movement and stuff like that without ever doing any foot drills. But I do think for kids, doing fun little drills, and I say more and less is better. Sometimes kids play two or three times a week, but too long. So I say more totally. days, six days a week, play 30 minutes, try to have fun, but do little things in between. But the, the hardest age for the coach you know, is this age as to keep their concentration, keep them focused, but keep it fun. Keep little drills going with the feet. Less time, more days is the best advice I can give you. And a word that you need, and I'm sure you already know, a little patience. Absolutely. Playing a range of sports too, when kids are younger, than, especially younger than 11, 12, because so much of the foundation of all sports, whether it's soccer or basketball, is the same with the good footwork and balance and coordination. That that translates from tennis to to soccer and basketball and baseball, you name it. It, it all translates. And under 10, Buck, too much pressure to be all in and just play one sport. Let's say, you know, tennis or basketball is going to be your one sport, but Learning to play other sports helps you compete in your own sport. Not to mention, this word gets lost a lot of times when you're all in. I call it fun. It's fun to compete and play in other sports and helps you learn about your own sport. Yeah, and, and make sure they're using the, the red dot or the orange dot balls. Absolutely. Because that makes it more fun when, when the balls are have less pressure in them. They're easy to play, easier to play with, easier to keep a rally. It makes a huge difference. When I was a kid, I, I was playing with like a four and five eighths Dunlop, and the only kids' racket was you saw off the grip. There was no, there I'm was amazed. nothing. I'm amazed any kid even wanted to get started playing tennis. <laughs> yeah, because other young. sports there was a lower, uh, there was a lower it's rim a tough, in basketball. Tough to entry. There was the you know t-ball, but yeah. tennis was long ways behind it. But the, these things are great. Well, I think that's going to do it on questions for the week. You have any? closing out thoughts in relation to the seeking of perfection. So I will, I'll call it the mirage of perfection. The trap of perfection, the pursuit of perfection doesn't exist. It makes you miserable chasing it. Tennis at all levels, juniors, USTA, club level, pro level. It's all about competing finding a way to be a little bit better than your opponent. And even if it isn't going well, the one thing that you can control more than anything is your effort level, your competing level. And when the obsession of being perfect drives you to this place where you stop competing because this is not how I envisioned it to be today. You can't sometimes control how well your opponent's going to play. He might make the adjustment to your game, but what you owe it to yourself and all the hours that you put in is compete 
work hard, enjoy the process, and give up about being perfect. Every once in a while, I would say a blue moon, it happens. Maybe when you least expect it, you do play that one perfect match. But grind away is much better and much safer for the brain. If you wanted a more apt name for this, what we're doing, I would call it competing ugly and not winning ugly. Winning ugly has a much better or winning uglier has a much better ring to it. But it's the, the beauty of it is is in the competition is and is in the struggle. I, I think if you if you go out there on the court with it with a need to win at all costs, it actually just creates at least for me when I was playing and, and I did, you know, get in this mindset for a while. It creates all this tension and and you actually don't have the freedom to go for your shots and to play the way that that you want to play. So it, so it's it actually it just works counterintuitively. But on uh, on the flip side, if you just go out there with your your number one goal is to compete and give max effort, then all of a sudden and and not be so tied to the result win or lose, I, I actually think you're going to end up playing way better. The need to compete and give your best effort is everything that I'm about. And yesterday doesn't matter. It's tomorrow where you can go out and give that effort. And that's what sports and tennis is about, not being perfect and having that mindset before you go on the court because that's a, a real trap that you're going to get in big trouble. It's good. It's emotional stuff. <laughs> Enjoyed it. It's a fun topic, and we'll be back at you winning uglier next week. Next week.